0: Welcome to the Lucky Letcord Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production, sponsored by Tennis Express. Hey there, tennis fans. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you and to celebrate that one month of the year we call the Tennis Off Season. We made it. We made it, everybody. A little bit of time to catch our breath. But we are going to talk tennis today, and we do have a special guest. That's tennis commentator Nick Lester. Pleased to speak with Nick this morning to break down the 2019 ATP season. Look a little bit at the decade that was. Dive in a little bit on Andy Murray resurfacing that gory footage of his hip surgery. Oh, also talk a little Davis Cup and some other things. Thanks for Nick for joining us. A uh, special programming note from the Lucky Letcord podcast. We and get this. We. Are going to be joining the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. In fact, we've already joined. You can find us at tennis.com. Just go to podcasts over there and flip down and see us uh, with the other 11 podcasts in the group. We're excited for that. We're also excited for. What else are we excited for? Christmas! Santa Claus! Actually, we're excited about our social media. You can find us at Facebook.com slash You can find us on Twitter at Tennis Underscore Now. Hit us up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the above. Just Google Lucky Let Cord Podcast. Now let's talk to Nick Lester. The Lucky Let Court Podcast is proud to bring along, for the first time, ATP commentator at Prime Video UK and ATP Media and other things as well. He's been covering the tennis beat from the commentator perspective for over a decade now. It's Nick Lester. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm very well, Chris. Good to talk to you. When we start this discussion about the decade, what, what springs to
1: mind for you, Nick I think I think probably in many ways, Chris, kind of blanket dominance of the big events, from, from those kind of big three or four guys, you, you know, um, we're just, for me, I've been mean, very fortunate as you say, to travel over pretty much the last decade to kind of almost all the major events. We are consistently taking it for granted that, that there's going to be one of those big three or four guys that are going to win either a Masters or a Major and I think that, that level of consistency that they, they have shown that we've really never seen before uh, over the course of, of tennis. let's be honest, we just haven't seen it before over the course of professional tennis, has, has been something to behold. You know, at times maybe we've watched a few extra winners a bit from to freshen it up, but just to watch their hunger, Chris, their passion, their uh, I guess, unbridled desire to want to keep creating history. Has has been something that has just been at times mind blowing to be honest to watch. You know the the, the drive with which those top guys have had. Um, it, it's been extraordinary, and and it's been it's been for me a privilege to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like this decade where you, tennis fans. And those in the business, if it just had to pinch themselves, it's been so good, and it's it's been so prolonged. I think at the beginning of the decade, if you had asked me, would the big three still be even in the sport right now? I would have I would have said no way. That at least Roger Federer would be gone. He's now thirty eight. It's just remarkable the longevity that these players are experiencing. Yeah, and
1: I think you know, I think in many ways that I was looking at it the other day, Chris. That's summed up by two majors. If you look at the Australian Open, Chris. Uh, in, from 2010 onwards, that decade, I believe i have right, in saying that only three players beat Djokovic in Melbourne, Vavrinka, Istimin and Chung, in 10 years, and only one player yeah, beat Nadal at Roland Garros in 10 years. And that was Novak Djokovic, of course, because he pulled out, I believe, against Granolias one year. So, I mean, that is that is just crazy stuff. You know, two majors the kick off the year in australia and melbourne and for both those two guys who have enjoyed extraordinary levels of dominance at both those events to only lose collectively four times in 10 years i believe i'm right in saying i mean that's just crazy isn't it that that, that over the, you just you know that kind of just the ability just to to be ready at those tournaments from those guys and to be able to to show everyone else how it's done has has been remarkable
0: It's unreal. And let's be more specific and get to 2019. You mentioned Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal. Those were the two players that took the Grand Slam hardware. Um, It was a pretty amazing season, though, although you could say that Big Three domination continued. It's now been 12 straight majors for the Big Three, and I think some people might off the cuff, say that it's been boring, maybe predictable, but it didn't feel that way this year. It felt a little bit different. It felt like it, it's getting tougher and tougher for those players to stay at the top, which makes their success all the more remarkable. I put it to you, what do you think some of the prevailing and most impressive storylines or some of the bigger things you saw in 2019 that characterized this season of Yeah, tennis? well, I
1: guess having said what I just said, Chris, I think 2019 perhaps was the turning point, wasn't it? You know, the, the previous eight years, if you look at 2019, I think we had five Different Masters 1000 winners that hasn't happened in a while. The first, you know, four or five prizes yeah. were all shared around, which was great. So there's, there's definitely, a, I think, a feeling amongst this youthful group that they um, feel they have the beating of, of the big three, big four at times. I know it hasn't happened consistently, but it has happened at majors. Obviously, I think the tone was set with Cipta passes whenever Federer in Australia. I think that was a big moment for. For, for in terms of big picture for these younger guys to see Stefanos go and yes. beat Federer at the first major of the year. I think that was huge. That then I think in many ways kind of not allowed the other guys to believe, but certainly I think gave them a little shot in the arm to suggest that this could be a season where we see a transitional period. Dominic Team's improvement improvement was outstanding. It feels like I think you know we're all in the same boat. We feel like he's trending towards a major pretty soon. You know whether that's on a hard courts or more than likely possibly on clay, given how Nadal plays. Time will tell. Um, so I think we, I think we, we have been talking about a transitional period for perhaps two to three years. Maybe optimistically, Chris, we've been talking about it, but I think now we're talking about it realistically, and and that's the thing. Those big three guys do sit at the top of the world rankings, and, and we have to be honest about it. It's still a big league, Chris you know, Nadal and Djokovic ending this season with just shy of 10,000 points. You go down to Medvedev, who's someone we're talking about, 5,600 points this year, Chris. So we're still talking about a 5,000-point gap. You know, it's not like, yes, they've beaten them, but it's not like it's within 1,000 points. You know, it's still quite a big gap, which obviously suggests that at the very biggest tournaments, these guys, these top guys are still owning things. However, it is getting closer. There's no doubt about that. And I think more importantly, the younger guys, do not have the fear factor they had necessarily, and they feel as though there is a confidence within that group. They feel as though they can go on to win majors.
0: But if you put your predictors cap on, what would you say would be the more likely scenario for 2020? Close but no cigar for the the three players that are probably most likely to be next in line, team Medvedev and Tsitsipas, in terms of winning majors? Or do you think there's there's a real tangible chance that they do break through and do you feel that they'll get it done next year?
1: I think one of those guys will win a major. That's what I think. I feel as though, certainly looking at Dominic Team, the improvements he's made in his game, he has the power from the back of the court to trouble anybody on any surface now, which is significant for him. Obviously, a slower half court is going to help him out. But you know, we show, he showed in London he could do it. So I, I, I honestly I do feel as though we are going to see a new major winner next year. I really do. Uh, there is obviously the element of, of these three guys chasing each other for history there. You know, I think that's another factor, in Chris. As well, you know, this major tally, this chase that these guys are on, they're all pushed. They're all continuing to try and, and, and follow suit as well. So that's a little battle within the battle. But for me personally, yes. Chris, I've seen enough from Pass I've seen enough from Medvedev team, especially. To, to suggest to me that it's getting closer and I feel 2020 could be the year where we see a change.
0: What what would you say about Tsitsipas's, I'll say, struggles in the second half of the season, struggled at Wimbledon, struggled at the US Open? How important was it for him to put those struggles behind him and do what he did in London in
1: early November? Massive. And, and I think, Chris, we have to we have to be realistic. You know, for a guy like him who... Only 12 months ago won the next gen finals. He played a lot of tournaments right. this year, Chris. I think I'm running right saying he played the most events of anyone in the top twenty. I, I want to say it was something like twenty-seven, twenty-eight. I don't expect him to play quite as much next year. And I think possibly if you look at the way his year panned out, he probably played a little bit too much in the first six months. He got to the grass court season. Pressure was on. He was a little tired. He lost to Fabiano there. That hit him hard. He then played Rublev in the first round of the U.S. Open. And, and, you know, we're so keen, Chris, on looking at results. And, oh, he lost in the first round. He lost to a very good player in Andre Rublev, a guy who will probably be top 10, I would have thought, very close to next year. So, realistically, I think you always have to be careful in just looking at straight out results. He lost in the first round. Who did he play? He lost to a good player. So I, I think the, the the way he bounced back in the in the, towards the end of the season was great. But I think for pass, physically I think he can challenge anyone. I think there's a couple of areas to improve the return, and, and as particularly for me, an area he's quite streaky on the return. So I think if he can tighten that up, get a, a few you know chip returns into play, that'll be big for him. Uh, and the Baltos, they changed the ball toss earlier uh, in the year, which was significant as well. So his serve became a more potent weapon. So for Tsitsipas, our, our, you know, we all know his personality. He's so unique. I like what I see from him. And I think he, he sees himself as a world number one. And I think that's huge.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, We'll stay on this subject a little bit before we switch off and uh, chat a bit about Andy Murray and and his Mm. new documentary, Resurfacing. But um, another layer of players that are starting to come on board, Felix al Yassim, we saw a great push from him this year. Denis Shapovalov, I can go down a list of names. Yannick Mm. Sinner impressed a lot of us in the last half of the season. There's also some older players that are proving themselves. There's Berrettini. uh, There's uh, Sasha Zverev, who we're not even talking about. There's a lot of names in that next layer. And I wanted to ask you about this because it just occurred to me yesterday that we may have a period now of just this incredible depth in the ATP in the top 50 where we used to look to women's tennis for the depth and say that, well, the women's tennis has the depth and the more excitement on tour. I'm starting to see that the men has a lot of scenarios, a lot of players that can do a lot of damage in Masters and in Grand Slams. I wonder if you and your colleagues are thinking the same thing, that maybe we're coming out of the golden age of tennis and maybe heading right into another golden age. Yeah, race. I mean, I,
1: I think what will happen, Chris, is I, I firmly believe that prizes will be shared around a lot more. I think probably, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise for me if we're sitting here in 10 years' time. God willing, hope we are all sitting here in 10 years' time discussing. I think we could well have a, a, a much more even spread of, of, of major winners. You know, the odd... You know, you go back to, for example, 2002, Thomas Johansson winning, for example, the Australian yeah. Open. You know, we haven't had a... Certainly, off the top of my head, we haven't had a surprise major winner for, for as long as I can remember. Marin Cilic maybe came out, possibly the last right. one if I was to throw that around. And was that a surprise? Well, maybe it was, but you know, I, I think this decade coming up, Chris, certainly from you know in a couple of years from now, we're going to see the prizes spread a lot more around. These guys are not going to be, I personally think, anywhere near uh, as, as as kind of overwhelmingly um, productive in terms of their major wins. I, I think we could have six, seven guys on, on four or five. You know, come the end of their careers, you mentioned obviously Shapovalov, Alex Di Someone I think who does he have the weapons? Perhaps not necessarily, but he could be a guy who, if there is an opportunity, could well with a match, You know, he has the heart, he has the, the, he's got a lot of weapons to his game. He's only going to get better, as you say. Yannick Sinner, massive promise from a young man who is mentally so mature for his age; it's extraordinary. I listened to all the view with um, his coach the other day. He was just talking about his family and the background he had, and uh, and he's only 18 years of age. So there's, there's, there's so many good guys coming through, as you say, and it, and it is very exciting. Rudolf Mollick is another guy. In fact, I had a, a long chat. I was at the um, Champions event in London last week. I had a very interesting discussion with one, Carlos Ferrero. He's coaching a 16 year old at the moment who he was telling me about, uh, who has great promise, uh, based in Alicante. And he said to me, there's actually quite a few young Spanish guys now coming through. Carlos Uh, Alcaraz was his name. He's 490 in the world. He said to me, listen, in a couple of years, you know, we're pretty confident that he's going to be real. So to to end your point, I think certainly we are going to have a much more even spread of prizes going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it certainly does make it exciting at the two fifties, the five hundred. The first thing I do when I look at the draws these days is check out which players, you know, twenty one and under, are in these events. And there's always a bunch of them, and they're and they're always making headlines, and they're always playing entertaining tennis. So I think I used to worry about tennis after the big four era, uh, and these days not so much anymore. I think that the, the game's going to be fine, and it's going to be wildly entertaining as, as far as the eye can see. But let's talk about Andy Murray and resurfacing because I just watched this documentary. Last night, and um, besides those gory images of him hammering that ball into his hip, I found it to be a pretty, pretty entertaining show. And I just, I, I just wanted to see if I could get your take on the legacy of Andy Murray, what he has meant to British tennis and to tennis as a whole, and, and just kind of this, this story of Murray. Struggling and then approaching retirement and now being, you know, I guess you can't ever say fully fit, but now becoming a factor for 2020. I mean, how remarkable is this story and what he's been able to endure over these last, say, 24 yeah, months? Yeah, and, and
1: I think, to be honest, that the, the kind of the microcosm of his career, from my perspective, was the match in Australia this year against Roberto Bautista Good when he was probably only 25% fit in terms of his health. He was playing on one hip and he was still able to, to beat a player who finished 11 in, or nearly beat a player, finished 11 in the world this year out of out of not just skill, but pure stubbornness. And, and as, as you saw in that documentary, if people haven't seen it, I certainly urge you to see it because you get a real insight into who he is. And I actually thought the mo- one of the, the most pertinent things that was said and, and to really get a grasp of Andy's personality was when they talked about he's a guy who needs to know why. And for me, that says everything. He wants to know. It doesn't matter if it's tennis, it's sport, whatever it is. He wants to know the answer why, and he wants a reason why. He needs he needs evidence, and I think that says it all in terms of his attention to detail, his stubbornness. He he needs to be on the. He needs to know what path we're going on. It needs to be the right one. And and I think from from a British perspective, it's been a massive transition. Chris, fifteen years ago, twelve years ago, when this guy first came on the scene nobody liked him in the uk nobody warmed to him he was hard to warm to he was a, he was shy he was on court he was aggressive as we've all seen his personality was such but but I think as time has gone on over the last five or six years people have come to appreciate his how great he is as a sportsman how hard he's worked as an athlete uh, and they've got to his personality is one that has has started to kind of twist in terms of people see the real Andy Murray now, whereas before they didn't because he was quite, because he was, as you know, because he was quite shy behind the scenes. He didn't give much away. He wasn't particularly comfortable in the media spotlight, but probably in the last three or four years, if you, you're, you're a journalist yourself, you've seen it. He's probably, I think, of outside of Federer, in any press conference, the best person to speak to because he's so engaging. He's so revealing. He's so often willing to talk about tactics and everything that goes with that. So Andy's come a very long way. And, and I think there will not be men you know, to, there are not many people worldwide who are cut from a cloth like Andy's. He's just such a unique individual.
0: Yeah, he certainly is. And of course, able to pull a title in Antwerp late in the season. And now, not feeling any pain in that hip? Do you think he could be a minor factor next season? Get back, get back a top 20, top 10 ranking? Or do you think uh, you're just going to wait and see to see how his body holds up and what he'll be able
1: to do next season? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I, you know, Again, having spoken to a fair few people who are in the know about the specific surgery, it comes with risks. There's no doubt about that. It comes with risks, long-term risks. But he, I think, is just so determined and so eager to to, to get out on court again. That was obvious, wasn't it, from the breakdown he had after Washington in the the documentary that how how painful it was for him to consider life without tennis, that he has gone the route of taking the risk of wanting to play. He obviously has to have assurances that he's going to be okay. Um, I do see him being a top 20 player. Yes, I do. Do I see him being a top ten player? I mean, the way he played Vavarinka in the final of Antwerp, where Stan was playing at a high level. It wasn't like Stan wasn't playing at a high level that day. After after having had a physical week as well, there was obviously a bit of concern in Davis Cup where he played one match, but I'd better believe he really hadn't trained a lot in that intervening period. he'd given it a rest. So I guess a lot depends on how much how physically he's not going to be the physical beast he was three years ago. He's not going to be able to play that way necessarily over five sets. So that for me would be the question mark. How is he going to go over the clay court season on the surface that where the hip is going to be tested? Is that going to, is he going to play much on the clay? You know that, that is he going to focus more. Is he going to, is it going to be a case of less is more in terms of tournaments? What are we looking at tournament schedule wise, you know? Um, so I think there's a lot of questions to answer. I think he'll finish the year top 20 Chris next year. I'm not sure about top 10 I think that could be a, a little too much.
0: Just having him in the mix is incredible and if he if he does indeed get to top 20 it will, it will be another story we'll be celebrating this time next year. Uh, last question I want to get to you, Nick, is with you, Nick, is that um, the Davis Cup question, you called the last mm. ball of the season out in Madrid, it was pretty remarkable, and I think it went beyond, I have to say, almost everybody's expectations, how well that new format turned out, how much of a buy-in we got from the players out there in Madrid, and I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on the first year, do we need to see more changes and you know, what is your just overall impression of the first year of the new format of Davis? County? I enjoyed
1: it. I, I I will say one thing, having been in Madrid for a week. They got they got a little lucky. <laughs> you know, Spain winning the tournament, making the semis, building up with the atmosphere they had. They certainly they certainly struck lucky that weekend because I think it had it have been uh, Serbia against Australia in the semifinals and final and Spain, not being in the mix, it would have looked a very different competition. We have to be honest about that. Okay. You know, the final, I called the quarter-final Australia against Canada. There were only quarter full in the stadium. It was pretty quiet. I called USA Canada on court one. There was only, I would say a fifth of the stadium full. Yes. The Canadians brought plenty of fans, but still you're only talking about, you know, 300, 400 in a stadium that can hold 3000. So, The Spain story in many ways did cover up a few holes. It was a good start. I don't disagree with you, considering the massive change to the format. Players will always be happy, I think, Chris, if you look after them. They got paid well. They got treated well. You know, that's what, from the player's perspective, that's what they're looking for. Practice facilities were good. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, it should be in one other venue in Madrid. I actually would prefer to see it stay in one venue. I like the fact that, for me, I think it, the, the ticketing was probably slightly wrong in that I know I know that if you had one ticket for a match, you could only see that one. I think you need to maybe drink in the, the general tennis band so that one ticket to go and watch all matches. So if there is a, a tight match somewhere on court two, maybe you can go and watch that one if you've got a ticket for court three. Gravitate towards other matches. Now, I appreciate that Davis Cup, the ethics of Davis, the, kind of the ethos of Davis Cup was that you support your nation, which I agree. But I also think, me as let's just say I was a tennis fan, I'd want to go and watch all the matches. So I think, you know, to be able to sell a kind of one ticket for all courts I think would be a good idea. I would like to keep it in one place. We have to look at the, the, the timings, that we cannot have matches finishing at that time. So I think maybe a match tiebreak, a champions tiebreak, third set in the doubles has to be something. Starting a little bit earlier. Do we have did, you know, did we like the round robin with three teams and and working out the maths on the two second-place teams, it just felt a little bit messy. I would maybe look at four teams of four. Then we have to ask the question about how many dead rubbers are we playing then that week? Because if we have two teams that have lost, there's a lot of things they have to iron out. But Chris, I would agree. I think it was a good start. I'd like to see Fed Cup involved as well, personally. I think if we could have Fed Cup and Davis Cup in one venue, I know we'd need a big venue, but I think that would be really special to have Fed Cup and Davis Cup, the one big kind of The two competitions going on side by side, that would facilitate fans as well more because if you're a fan of France, you then get to watch the the ladies and the men as well on different parts. So there's a lot of things to consider, but, but I think overall, Chris, I think it was a phenomenal weekend and I think they were certainly helped by Spain going deep
0: absolutely do you and do you get the impression that the new management has its ears to the ground and is and is viewing this first season as uh you know almost a trial run and is willing to make these changes or do you think we're in for
1: another frustrating period where maybe things don't go as well as we No, nope, i think they're definitely they're definitely listening they're definitely killing to make changes for sure um P.K. Gerrard, P.K. said as much in the press conference on the final day. You know, they, they know you're never going to get it right the first year. They, you may never get it right the first couple of years, but they'll, they'll need some modifying. Um, you know, people obviously talking about a merger between the ATB Cup and the Davis Cup long-term. Again, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, the Davis Cup is the Davis Cup. It may not, maybe it may be different in its current format. But what are you going to call that? Because you can't call it the Davis ATB Cup. So for me, that you know, we all know in tennis that there's a lot of factions that are going pulling in different directions. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, and and I think Chris, we have to look at the date. You know, we have to look at the date. That last week. Isn't ideal. Now there isn't really another week. Novak Djokovic was talking about after the US Open whether they could fit that. Whether they go up against the Labor Cup, do that? Are they bold enough to say, you know what? We'll take that week, for Labor Cup. We'll go up against the Labor Cup. We back ourselves. You know, there's so many things that need to be ironed out. But I think that particular week, you know, it was a success. But I do think it's probably a week too many. And if we can have it in September, I think it would create even more of us.
0: Uh, And and along those same lines with the ATP Cup lingering on January 3rd, how are we going to get up for this emotionally? Uh, Different set of players very much, different event completely. I mean, what are you looking for? What do you want to see out of that event to know that it's uh, another viable ATP enterprise that can uh, stand the test of time? Listen, I
1: think I've been fortunate to work for Tennis Australia for a few years. I'm fairly certain they're going to make it a great event. I have no doubt about that. You know, will will the, will the competitive edge that we saw in Madrid be there? Probably not. No, because we saw how much it meant to Janko Tipsarevic and, and the Serbian team breaking down in tears. Are we going to get that in the ATP Cup? I don't think so, personally. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to. It's going to mean as much. It's not going to mean as much to the ATP Cup because it's not doesn't have the the history there. So they're not playing for the they're playing for a new competition. So. But I do think it's going to look good. Tennis Australia always do a great job. It's going to—I think the crowds will be great. January in Australia is, as you know, a fantastic time of year to be there. There's always a buzz. They love their sport, so I think the crowds will be good. Um, does it again? I, I, if I'm honest with you, I haven't looked at the X's and O's necessarily of it. I know one thing that is a concern for some players. They've uh, expressed is the fact that it will be a 19th event. It will count as a 19th event for a player's ranking. I don't think that's fair. That that becomes not a a particularly level playing field. John Millman, for example. Let me give you the example of John Millman, who is probably going to have to play Doha. Is that ideal? Probably not, given the fact he only gets to play a month uh, every year at home. So, listen, I I always look at a glass half-full scenario. I'm looking forward to the event. I think it'll work. Um, But, you know, like I said, it has isolated a few players. And I think if we look at the points allocation as well, it's a little complicated to work out who's getting what points, depending on what ranking they beat. So I think you always need to keep it as simple as possible. But again, first year, you know, when the dust settles after the first year, I'm sure they'll work it out and try and find a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I know I'll be watching. Question back to Davis Cup: What was your latest bedtime? It uh,
1: I was very lucky. I actually did the Italy USA tie, but I actually only called the first two matches. So I got out of there at two fifteen, and my colleagues finished at four twenty. So. Mm. I was very fortunate that day. Um, but yeah, four four certainly. Four four but you know what? I think you also have to guess, that's the Spanish way. The Spanish the Spanish are oh, their culture. That's kind of, that culture in Europe is to do things late. So in many ways, finishing yeah. at midnight, even though it looks crazy, the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians, it doesn't look so crazy over there because they're actually, uh, their culture is such they do things a little later, but you know, not, perhaps not quite as late as 4 a.m., I would agree. <laughs> Yeah, excellent.
0: Uh, last question for you, Nick. Um, Prime Video UK first year and a half. How are things going? And what have you got planned for next year in, t- in terms of you in the booth? Another busy year. I yeah, would imagine. it's been
1: a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, I split my work as you know. I, I do I do January for Tennis Australia. I do uh, some still work from ATP Media for Tennis TV. I'm doing Rotterdam next year for them and a couple of other events. So I still throw my work for them. Amazon I tend to do for the Masters One Thousands and for uh, London. So. I'm very fortunate that freelance-wise, I'm contracted by probably five or six different people individually. The USTA, I work for the US Open each each year. So, you know, I, I tend to, to sort of get heard in different places. But Amazon's been great in the UK. They're a completely, obviously, new company in terms of coming into broadcasting sports rights. They actually, would you believe, start their Premier League coverage this week in the UK, which is huge for them because we, oh, we wow. haven't had a new wow. Premier League football broadcaster for 10 years, I would say. So this is actually a very big period for Prime Video because they're, Amazon are now going into to, to soccer or whatever you guys want to call it over there. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a kind we'll of big, big deal for them this next month or so. They've got about four or five different weekends of football they're showing. Um, but they're, they're learning. They're learning. And, it, you know, they didn't necessarily have a structure, I think, at the start of the year. They're, they're trying to build a profile. And, and ultimately, you know, like any business, they've got to work out whether they feel... It's worth it. I know that they bought the um, Roland Garros television rights in France for the night sessions in a couple of years' time. So I think that gives you a sense of where they're going. They want to get more rights. Um, and, and, you know, in, 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 in probably five or six years' time, we'll all know how successful it was. So I, I, it certainly feels, it feels, having spoken to a lot of people, like that's the way the industry is moving.
0: I can say this, Nick, you are absolutely one of the best in the business and I have enjoyed listening to you over the decade and over the years and I look forward to more of it next year. And uh, I want to thank you for taking some time out today and speaking with us. I uh, wish you all the best for the the holidays and look forward to hearing you
1: next season. Chris, pleasure to, pleasure to chat and thanks for all you do as well.
0: Yeah, very cool. This episode of the Lucky Letcord podcast is a wrap. Thank you all for joining we will see you in about a week's time. We're going to catch up with Richard Pacquiao, Tennis Now editor, talk a little bit more about the decade that was in tennis. Thanks for joining. Enjoy the tennis off season. We'll see you next week.